Hey, it's Seth, author of This Is Marketing, and you are listening to the 200th episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by LinkedIn as one of the 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas in order to succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. Also, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners where you can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash marketingbookpodcast or just click on the link at marketingbookpodcast.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Seth Godin to the 200th episode of the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, This Is Marketing, You Can't Be Seen Until You Learn to See, published by Portfolio Penguin. Seth Godin is the author of 18 books that have been bestsellers around the world and have been translated into more than 35 languages. He's also the founder of the Alt-MBA and the Marketing Seminar, online workshops that have transformed the work of thousands of people. Seth writes about the post-industrial revolution, the way ideas spread, marketing, quitting, leadership, and most of all, changing everything. His best-selling books include Permission Marketing, All Marketers Are Liars, Lynchpin, Tribes, Unleashing the Idea Virus, The Dip, Purple Cow, and What to Do When It's Your Turn, and It's Always Your Turn. In addition to his writing and speaking, Seth has founded several companies, including Yo-Yo Dine and Squidoo. His blog, which you can find by typing Seth into Google, is one of the most popular in the world in and in, in 2018, he was inducted into the Marketing Hall of Fame. And interesting fact, his dog's name is the same name as Ron Burgundy's dog, Baxter. Seth, congratulations on This Is Marketing, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, thank you. And I am thrilled that there is a Marketing Book Podcast and that you are making it, and it's a super generous thing to share. So thanks for having me. Well, thank you. And I should add that the the I guess the previous book to this one was What to Do When It's Your Turn, and It's Always Your Turn. I read that before I started this, and it's like you were there with me saying, Douglas, you can do this, and you've got to do it now. <laughs> so I hope that was one of the uh, outcomes you were hoping for the book because it really exactly it got in my head and it made me just knock down all the barriers and say, you've got to go do it and you need to do it now. Fantastic. Love hearing this. So 
This is the 200th episode, but Seth, I want you to know that you don't have to wait and come on every 200th episode. There, <laughs> you're, you're welcome to come back anytime. And your name, obviously, has come up a lot on this podcast. Authors have mentioned you, and in the books that have been featured on the podcast, you and your books have been mentioned. And for careful listeners to the Marketing Book Podcast, there's a running joke that there have been more authors on the podcast with degrees from Stanford than any other school. So by marketing podcast law, I am required to interview because I, I see you also <laughs> have a degree from Stanford. So just another reason you had to be on this podcast. I only sort of have a degree from Stanford. I, uh, <laughs> I, I was in the MBA program, but at the end of my first year, I got a, a summer job at a company doing marketing in Boston. And on the last day of the summer, they offered me a job commuting back and forth, full-time job. And I don't know if you have a map there, but it's not it's not Stanford, Connecticut. It's Stanford in California. Right. And so I took the red eye back and forth, going to class on Monday, going to Boston Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, then back for class on Friday. And after a, a semester of that, one of the professors said, you know, why don't you just write a case study and we'll give you a degree. And I thought that was a fair trade. Hmm. So I just want to be full disclosure. I'm not... <laughs> I, while I may have a degree, it's hard for me to actually say I finished my MBA. Well, well, that's an interesting story. I think they probably did see your commitment there, and they saw that you had the right attitude. But uh, after your books or any book can be read, and it's always interpreted a little bit differently by the people that read them. And for me, after having read all the other books that have been on the show, this was the perfect book for me to read because it was like a bow. <laughs> tied around all the other 199 books, and it touched on so many of the big ideas that entire books have delved into. And it was also sort of an affirmation, like like your other book. It was like, yes, Douglas, you're, you're learning the right things. <laughs> you're heading in the right direction. But this book, as I'm sure you hear all the time, this book was so quotable. So I will be, uh, I will be quoting it a lot, not in the interview, not only in the interview, but in, uh, in other things that we're planning to do. And also, I was delighted, but not surprised, to see you mention Bernadette Jiwa several times in the book. And she's been on the podcast twice, and count me as, along with you, as, as one of her many fans. Well, yeah, she has a lot of wisdom to share, and she does it so generously. Mm -hmm. So, let me just start with a quick excerpt, and then we'll get into um, more of the specifics of the book. You say, it's time. Time to get off the social media merry-go-round that goes faster and faster but never gets anywhere. Time to stop hustling and interrupting. Time to stop spamming and pretending you're welcome. Time to stop making average stuff for average people while hoping you can charge more than a commodity price. Time to stop begging people to become your clients. And time to stop feeling bad about charging for your work. Time to stop looking for shortcuts and time to start insisting on a long, viable path instead. So Seth, tell us the story of how this book came to be and why you wrote it. Well, I love that you picked that excerpt. If I dug deep enough, I think that that would be the reason I wrote the book. You know, marketing books, I read my first one in 1980. Marketing books are magical. And they're magical because they give us a practical insight into culture and human nature. They are not about most what mostly happens in a corporation. Like accounting books or 
production books, those are about moving numbers or widgets from one place to another. But marketing books are about humanity. And one of the things that I love about people who read marketing books is they're thirsty. They're eager for knowledge and insight that will help them change the culture, that will help them make a change happen. And I believe that's all marketing is. Marketers make change. If you don't make change, you're not a marketer. You're just taking up space. So here's the challenge. These thirsty people, they fall into two groups. One group is racing to the bottom. They have persuaded themselves that they have the right to hustle. They're narcissistic egomaniacs who are bleeding just enough that they need to stop the bleeding. And they do that by shortcutting, by looking for a hustle, by trying to figure out a way to steal attention and turn it into money. And I don't know about you, but I bump into those people all the time. And they have persuaded themselves that it's okay because it's their job. And that bothers me. And there's a second group of people. And these people, and I will count many of my friends among them, want to make the culture better. They want to make their art. They want to escalate the conversation. They want to leave behind a trail that they're proud of. And these people are frustrated. They're frustrated because most of the paths that are available to them don't feel right. They either feel like a waste of time or like manipulation. They feel short-term, not long-term. They feel like they're pushing them to be average. So when I, I don't do any consulting, but when I'm talking to a friend, someone who's running a nonprofit or an important for-profit, someone who's trying to change the culture through politics or leadership, these are the conversations we have, the conversations that are in this book, the ones that start with, you don't do marketing to people or even at them, you do it with them. And it's a dance, it's a forward dance. And if you can care enough to lead in that sort of dance, you can make a difference. And so that led, that desire led to me building the marketing seminar, which more than 6,000 people have taken. It's truly transformative. It's 100 days that changes the way human beings think about and do marketing in all its forms. And some of the people in the marketing seminar said, we love this, totally worth five times what we paid for it, but our friends won't take it because they're afraid and blah, blah, blah. So here's a book in a handy $17, $20 format. Give it to other people so that you can have a conversation with them about the work you're doing and how to do it better. And when you say that the others don't want it, like their, their colleagues, their superiors, in other words, is, is that part of the change that you're talking about that they're bumping into? Well, you know, why do marketing books sell hundreds of thousands of copies, not millions of copies when they succeed? And I think there's two reasons. One reason is people think it might not work. It's not worth my time and effort to read a book about marketing because I've read one before and it didn't work. So <laughs> don't waste my time. But the other reason, which is really profound, is that they might work. That you're going to open a door for me and if you do, I'm going to have to go through it. And going through that door is going to lead to change and I'm afraid of change. I don't want to change. Well, the marketing seminar is just like that but times a thousand. because most online courses are a ripoff. Most online courses are just some videos. Most online courses aren't worth the time and money. So people say, I don't want to do it. It might not work. Mm -hmm. But then they see the testimonials or they hear from people about the change it made and they go, well, I don't want to do it because it might work. 
And that's the challenge we have with the Alt-MBA as well, is that people are afraid, adults, are afraid of education for two reasons. One, because it might be like middle school about compliance and authority and standardized tests and getting a certificate. Or it might not be like middle school, in which case you're going to have to be present and you're going to have to own your choices. And as adults, marketers have seduced us into being merely consumers, compliant consumers. And so when we get a chance to leap and we get a chance to see, we often don't take it. And the one little aside, because I'm ranting here, if you go oh, to please, New York, please. <laughs> if you go to New York City, you can go to the Olive Garden and see tourists eating at the Olive Garden in New York City. Which, for uh, our international listeners, is a restaurant that's available probably in many countries, but certainly throughout the United States. Yeah, it would be what would happen if McDonald's and a fancy Italian restaurant had a baby. And <laughs> the thing is, you can like the Olive Garden. I don't care if you like it or not. But to spend the time and money to come to New York City and then eat in a restaurant that reminds you of the place you ate at when you were at home, it's exactly what marketers have taught us to do, which is they have sold us convenience and comfort. And these are my brethren, these marketers. But I think that they are playing on part of human nature that probably needs to be downplayed and that I'm in the camp of saying what I'd like to sell is inconvenience and exploration in the service of making things better. So explain what is meant in the title, the subtitle of the book about helping the marketer learn to see. So mostly the book's about empathy. And what it says is everyone else doesn't know what you know. They don't believe what you believe and they don't want what you want. And if you can't embrace that, if you need to insist that you are right and everyone else is uninformed, you are going to be a very frustrated marketer. And the alternative is to acknowledge that everyone has a noise in their head that's not the noise you have in your head. That's called Sonder. And to, to run with that idea and say, that person who wants what they want, can I give them permission to, what, to want what they want? And then can I help them find a path to get to where they're going? That's different than changing what someone wants. That's another project, and that's possible as well. But you need to do it on purpose. And so, you know, the other subtitles of the book, the two other ones that we almost used were, people like us do things like this, which is the essence of culture. And my favorite was, make things better by making better things. <laughs> Because the best way to complain is to make something. And so if you want to make things better, this is a book, is a challenge for you to show up and lead. Mm. So, so much to talk about there, just, just right there. But let's go back to the change, because that part of the book, where you talk about change, it helped to remind me more about the customers out there. And there was another book, the Challenger Customer on the podcast a couple of years ago. Sure. The same folks that wrote the Challenger Sale, and they were talking about how we're all selling change. You know, regardless, you might be in a manufacturer, you might be a, an author, you might be a services company, but we're all selling change, and change is very terrifying to our caveman brains. And you talk about how marketers, you said marketers make change happen, for the smallest viable market 
and by delivering anticipated personal and relevant messages that people actually want to get. So do you think that marketers are forgetting about change because of the change in the customer's life because of this uh, dearth of empathy? Well, yeah, I think that if you are a transactional marketer trying to make your quarterly numbers, it's difficult to take a step back and figure out why are you actually here? Instead, what you're doing is saying, oh, I got 400 people in the funnel. How am I going to put a squeeze play on so that 20 of them show up? And that part of the panic in the marketing world, besides the fact that advertising is dying, is the idea that we are switching, because we're moving online, from unmeasurable brand marketing to mostly measurable direct marketing. You know, when I was a direct marketer in the 80s, no one else was a direct marketer. Me, Lester Wonderman, Lillian Vernon, and a few other people. That was it. Mm -hmm. And I should add for the listener that you're in the direct marketing hall of fame as well. That's true, which is ironic because first I got kicked out of the Direct Marketing Association, but that's a whole other story. That's right, that's right. So, um, you know, direct marketing is scary because you spend the money, you measure everything, and then if it doesn't work, it's your fault. So for a very long time, almost everyone who had the choice in marketing avoided direct marketing because it was better to not measure for your career. And to give you an example, when I was at Yahoo!, People, the homepage of Yahoo was sold out for uh, two years at a time. Now, there's no reason to buy the banner on the homepage of the, of the internet because you're going to reach everyone. And that's silly because the internet's not a mass medium. It's a micro medium. Reach who you want to reach. Don't reach everyone. But it was sold out because it was easy to tell your boss you had bought basically the whole internet. But number two, Yahoo had reports to show these advertisers how many people clicked on their ad. And the advertisers didn't want the report. They didn't want to know. Because if they knew, they'd have to tell everyone. And if they told everyone, it would be obvious that it didn't work. So here we are in this direct marketing world where most of the money spent online is direct. And that pushes people not to think about the moral, emotional, and conceptual project of what they're doing, it pushes them to measure numbers. How many people clicked? And so my argument is, if you're going to do direct marketing, do it for the right reasons, do it in the right way. But if this is your career, then be a professional and accept and embrace the fact that what you're really doing is trying to change part of the culture. Mm. So as it relates to making change happen, can you explain the the concept of the smallest viable market and maybe explain why, I guess it's so counterintuitive to some, or why they're so fearful of trying to find the smallest viable market rather than trying to be all things to all people. Well, it's counterintuitive to everyone and even to me. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. So here's what we grew up with. We grew up with the only brands in our life being mass brands. So if I reference Pop-Tarts to you, you know what Pop-Tarts are, right? That everyone had a Heinz ketchup in their fridge. Mm -hmm. That marketing and mass were the same thing. And the reason is obvious, because there's only three TV channels, there's only uh, 100 billboards. If you're going to buy any promotion, you're going to reach everybody. So if you're going to reach everyone, you better make something everyone wants to engage in. But that's gone. And so now salsa outsells ketchup. So now, the number one beer in America, by far, 
is none of the above. <laughs> that if I made a list of the top 10 or 20 best-selling beers in America, number one on that list would be none of the above. Because give people a choice, they take a choice. Because with micro-marketing instead of mass marketing, you can't reach everyone even if you want to. That the Super Bowl is just a, a chimera. It doesn't make any sense. And so given that you can't reach everyone, what you can do if you wish is not to make an average product that no one's going to bother to care about, but to make something exceptional that a few people care deeply about, just enough, just enough people to keep you going. Now, you get to pick which people it's for. Think about that. So if you're going to write a book and you want to amaze and delight 1,000 people and you get to pick who the 1,000 people are, you're going to write a different book. And you're going to be able to bring that book straight to those 1,000 people. And that will be enough. And then a bonus happens, which is if you truly delight those 1,000 people, they will tell their friends. And that is how the word spreads. Not because you yelled at strangers, but because you danced with the people who wanted to hear from you. So another topic in the book that I just wasn't as familiar with and I wasn't aware of, but when you explained it, doggone it, made a bunch of sense. <laughs> it was about, and also particularly as it relates to sales and salespeople. And you say that at the heart of our culture is our belief in status, in our self-perceived understanding of our role in any interaction and in, in where we're going next. Can you talk about the importance of status uh, as it applies to marketing? Yeah, this is something that I have never read in a marketing book. And, you know, I well, think I feel better now because <laughs> I just told you that I had, this was new to me. Yeah, there's, there's maybe a dozen brand new shocking ideas in this book. And that one is at the center of it. <sighs> Here's how we evolved over millions of years. The question every sentient animal asks itself is, who gets to eat lunch first? That happens with lions on the savanna. It happens with rhinos around the oasis. Who gets to eat first? And so human beings, that's the way we're wired. And then on top of it, politics, culture, marketers, we're constantly reminding people of this. Who gets to eat first? So you're at the Hamptons, the super fancy beach suburb of New York City. It's July. And you pull up in front of the fancy supermarket where peaches cost $8 each, and you're feeling really good because you're in your brand new AMG Mercedes. Now, you don't need an AMG Mercedes to get to the market. You paid the extra $140,000, not because it will get you there faster, because there's traffic. What you paid $140,000 extra for is how it made you feel when you got out of the car in front of the market. And you park your car, and then a brand new Enzo Ferrari pulls up right in front of you. How does that make you feel, right? So the ratchet is in place. And it's not just in place in the Hamptons. It's in place in Kibera, which is the giant slum in Kenya, right? What are we measuring? It might be stuff, but it might not be stuff. It might be, what do the people in power think of you? It might be, you know, what kind of clothing are you wearing? It might be, what's the look on the face of the preacher when he or she sees you walking down the street. These are all status role things. Mm -hmm. They're not about, did you get fed? Do you have a roof over your head? It's all about that other commentary. So you mentioned Baxter, the Wonder Dog. 
the relationship between Baxter, my dog, and Truman, the dog across the street, is at the heart of one of the episodes of Akimbo, the podcast I do, because Baxter hates Truman. And the question is, and, why? And Baxter's otherwise a really nice dog, yes. right? Baxter likes every other dog. Why <laughs> does he hate Truman? Well, the reason he hates Truman is Truman's a little bigger, so he has more status, but Truman's a lot older, so he has less status. And the relationship between Baxter and Truman is fraught because neither one can figure out who's in charge. And so when we think about what marketers do in terms of creating insiders and outsiders and creating hierarchies, in terms of offering people something that will make things, quote, better, unquote, one of the things we do is we offer people who want more status, more status. One of the things we do is offer people who want their status to stay the same a chance to have it stay the same. And yes, we offer people who want their status to go down, and there are people like that, a chance to have their status go down. And so all of these subtexts are at work when we thought what we were doing was buying ads or clicks. No, what we're doing is going deep into what people believe and dream and want and talk about and create something and say, here, I made this and see if it resonates with them. Mm. So you mentioned earlier this other concept that just you know helped to rewire part of my marketing brain, and that is people like us do things like this. People like us do things like this, and you mentioned it throughout the book. Can you explain that? Well, you know that's the, def the definition of culture, right? That if you got into a, a car in 1964 and didn't put on your seatbelt, no one blinked an eye. And if as you were driving, you were smoking a cigarette, no one blinked their eye. But now, in your Volvo, of course, everyone is not only buckled in, they're wearing a car seat at the age of nine, right? And not only that, but you you know, would be worried about child protective services if you were smoking a cigarette in the car. <laughs> right. So what happened? Well, what happened is the simple mantra, people like us do things like this. Who are people like us? Is it people in my congressional district? Is it people in my office? Is it people who go to the same, you know, rod and reel fishing show that I go to? Whatever it is, people like us, we've identified with each other, right? Do things like this. Which things, right? Drive a pickup truck, wear a hat. What is it that we do? So, you know, I, I give the example briefly in the book of The Grateful Dead, but there was never a doubt if you went to a Grateful Dead concert who the people like us were. And there was never a doubt about what the things like this are. And so if you want to have influence as a marketer, you better be really clear who the people like us are. And you better be really clear about what the things like this are. And that can help people to, I guess, decide to want to join? Or is it that they realize that it's okay? It's like it's safe to change. Well, it's not safe. Actually, what we're saying to people is if you don't get with the program, your status is going to go down. No one feels like it's safe to change ever. It's just safer to change than it is to stay still. But they're not happy about it. It creates tension. The tension of this might not work. The tension of, uh-oh, what will people say? So, you know, if you think about yo-yos at the elementary school, the first day, if the right kid brings a yo-yo into school, five other kids will start wanting a yo-yo. Who are those five kids? What do they want? What's motivating them? 
What they want is the status that comes from being an early adopter, the status that comes from going first. So if those five kids come in tomorrow with a yo-yo, they've just threatened the status of 40 other kids. Those are the kids who don't want to be left behind. So the next day, those 40 kids come in with a yo-yo, and now the masses, the masses are not happy. They're not happy because they like doing what everyone else is doing, but they can't tell for sure, but it seems like everyone else has a yo-yo. So they got to go get one or else they're going to get left out. And they don't like being left out. That's why they're in the masses. And so this whole cycle continues. Whatever we're selling, whatever we're doing for a given community, each person gets peeled off because in that moment, it's safer to go forward than it is to stay still. Creating tension, you mentioned. You talk in the book about how creating and, and relieving tension is is important for marketers. Can you say a bit more about that and, and maybe give some examples of how marketers are effectively creating tension? Sure. And, and by the way, these are great questions. When when I wrote the book, I wrote it as we were running the marketing seminar. And it, it, we, it's in this custom-built discussion board. So we can see all the thousands of people and all the conversations they're having. And the stuff about tension really gets under people's skin. I've seen this work out. <laughs> Because we don't think that that's what we're going to work to do. So what, what you're we, saying is that tingling means it's working? Yeah, I guess. I mean, what's happening is we think we're there to serve. And we think if we just show up with a clear description of why we are better, everyone will drop everything, run over to us, and give us money. But in fact, that's not what happens. It's not what happened to Nike. It's not what happened to Dropbox. It's not what happened to any successful marketer. That no one announces on Monday that they've got this, and then on Tuesday, everyone happily buys it. That has never happened in humanity's history. That actually, what happens is, your announcement, your press release, your display at the store, whatever it is you do, is going to cause tension for people. And that tension is like a rubber band being pulled it will always be pulled before the rubber band goes off of the, the wrist it's on and goes on someplace else. That pulling is, I want to do it, but I don't want to do it, right? I want to go forward, but I'm afraid. I want to spend the money, but I don't have enough. Always two things back and forth at the same time. That's called tension. And a lot of people don't like feeling tension, which is why they say they don't like marketers and salespeople. But what they're actually saying is, I don't like marketers and salespeople who are selfishly using tension to get what they want. That in fact, they're totally fine with marketers and salespeople who use tension to help them get what they want because they're now satisfied that they bought a new car. They're now satisfied that the lifeguard saved their life by putting the life buoy just two inches in front of them. Because in that moment, they didn't want to grab the buoy, but they did. And it took an effort to do it. And so that's the posture we can adopt as marketers, is that we can show up for the right people in the right way and get their enrollment in us creating tension on their behalf. You just used the word enrollment. And that, again, was yet another concept expressed in a way I'd never seen, and I'm stealing it. Please do. With full uh, you know, uh, attribution, of course. But... Explain what you mean when you say you're looking to enroll people. I, I thought that was great. And the reason I loved it 
is in part because that helps me to explain to companies that they're new to a lot of this, that people were trying to help. Instead of saying, um, we're just looking for newsletter subscribers, we're looking for people to enroll, which seems like a word that's much more active and shows more commitment on their part. Can you talk about the concept of enrollment for marketers? Well, one thing that's great about education in the United States is that it's universal. Everyone has to do it. The problem is that we've added this word mandatory next to it. There's no such thing as mandatory education. You cannot educate someone against their wishes. There has to be something in it for them or they won't listen to you. So once we realize that we are teachers and that we can teach students who want to go where we are going, then we can embrace the idea that we seek enrollment. Because if someone signs up to go where we are going, we don't have to hassle them to keep going. So you know, if you buy a plane ticket to go to Cleveland, you've enrolled in the journey to Cleveland. And at no step along the way does American Airlines have to threaten you, cajole you, bribe you. They just say, Flight 452 is boarding now. And you get on board because you're enrolled in that journey. And the same thing is true for a newsletter subscriber. There are lots of ways you can trick people into subscribing to a newsletter or trade them to subscribe. But if they're not enrolled in where that newsletter is taking them, they're never going to read it. It's going to go to the promo folder. Goodbye. That's not worth anything. But if people are enrolled in the journey, going where you are going, and the newsletter doesn't go out next Tuesday, they'll call you and say, where's the newsletter? Because I want to go where it's going. There's a great talk about the fight for increasingly scarce attention now. And there was another uh, author I had on the podcast a while back named Tom Fishburne, who you may know. He's the marketoonist. Actually, I was just looking at his book 10 minutes ago. <laughs> wow. Well, it, the one about brand camp. Oh, this is the one that it celebrates his first 15 years of being a cartoonist full-time. And he went to Harvard Business School, and he worked at a lot of blue-chip firms as a marketer, and then he became this cartoonist. And when you look at that book, it's called Your Ad Ignored Here. Right. And when you look through it, it's like looking through the history of <laughs> the last 15 years of marketing. Anyway, I asked him, because it just seems so such a difficult art form, and I said, what, what is your source of inspiration? And he said, my number one source of inspiration for the work I do is making fun of marketers who think they still have a captive audience. Right. <laughs> and... Yet, and, and then there's this talk of how there's as much content now being produced as every two days as there was from the beginning of time to the year 2003. So great, we're fighting for attention. But you remind readers that trust is as scarce as attention. Well, yeah, maybe even more so. So attention is one thing, and I think we've covered that, and it, people are finally having it dawn on them. But Attention doesn't do you any good if people don't believe you. It doesn't do you any good if people aren't rooting for you. It doesn't do you any good if people are rolling their eyes. That trust plus attention is where action comes from. And very, very few marketers are sufficiently invested in trust. And judging from my inbox, most of them are burning it as fast as they can find it. Right? Oh, you didn't read the fine print. Well, yeah, I didn't read the fine print because I trusted you. And now you've just taught me a really valuable lesson. Thank you. I'm never going to trust you again. So that fine print might make you money in the short run, 
but you just burn down your most valuable asset. You know, I did a, a blog post in September, October about burning hammers for heat. And there's something to be said if you're really, really cold for lighting a wood hammer on fire because it will burn. But now you won't have a hammer anymore. It's a really stupid long-term play. Yeah. So there was one other thing that I just think is such a great reminder for marketers or at least for marketers to understand their position in their organization or maybe to help their companies understand that marketing is so much more than promotion. And that's when you said, most of all, marketing begins and often ends with what we do and how we do it, not in all the stuff that comes after the thing is designed and shipped. Are there ways that you know of that are helpful for marketers to understand, I guess, how to push back on their organization and say, look, you're asking me to put lipstick on a pig. It's more than just the shouting we're doing about our products. I don't think most marketers want the responsibility. But if they do, the answer is super easy. Just say no. No. I, you know, the accountant says, I'm not going to sign off on these books. They're fraudulent. <laughs> right. and, and the books get better. Right? Uh-huh. Well, the marketer says, I'm not going to run these ads because the product sucks and I don't want to burn our trust. No, no. Come back to me when you have something good. That's all you got to do. No. That's great. Seth, one other thing that you mentioned in the book, and I've seen you say it, I've been able to see you speak live a few times and your website says you don't do a lot of long haul trips. So for the listeners, if you ever have a chance to go see him talk, it's a great experience. And one of the things Yet another way you've wormed your way into my head, Mr. Godin, is when you talked about how the internet wasn't made for advertising. And earlier things like radio, newspaper, they were. Can you explain that idea? So I just read uh, today the very first ad ever on television was from Boulevard Watches. Mm. This is trivia. It's not relevant to what I was about to say, but here we go. They invented the newspaper so they would have a place to run newspaper ads. And they invented radio so they would have a place to run radio ads. That's the business model. That television, oh, we can make TV ads. Where should we put them? Let's make TV. This is the first medium that is used by a large number of people every day that wasn't invented to make advertisers happy. Right? Books don't count because they're not used by enough people every day. But think about that. They bought at Wired and at um, uh, GNN, they bolted banner ads on top of an already well functioning internet. That there's nothing that we built in this medium that was designed to make advertisers happy. So once you realize that, now you understand why there's a billion channels. Now you understand why everything is one click away, why everyone has the most powerful remote control in history, why there are ad blockers and spam filters. Because advertising is an unwelcome intruder in a medium that wasn't built with protections for advertisers. And so when you show up and say, wow, this is just like TV, except I don't have to pay for the ads, the user says, go away. (laughs) Yep, and their ad is, is ignored. So, Seth, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? How lucky are we that we have this privilege to change the culture and this responsibility to make it better? 
that complaining isn't helping, but making things better is essential. And the only way we can do that is by changing the culture on purpose to make it a world we'd rather live in. And I think that's a responsibility that belongs to every person who has ever asked for a click, put a story into the world, tried to change behavior. So I'm hoping that people will see this and embrace it and own that opportunity to make things better. Well said. And it's also a key to great success if they do that. Yeah, it's a nice bonus. <laughs> it's, we're not telling them to sit up straight and, and uh, do things they're, they're supposed to be doing. This is actually going to, it's going to help. So at the end of your book, you've got a long list of recommended books including some of your own, which should be on there. But what books have inspired your work? Well, there are countless marketing books that I have stolen enormous amounts of inspiration and fodder from. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have not read The Pursuit of Wow and uh, the Tom Peters Seminar, two books by Tom that are really marketing books. I often talk about Bernadette Jiwa's books as well as the work of... Lewis Hyde, who wrote a book called The Gift, which had a huge impact on me. Uh, I read a book called Snow Crash a very long time ago that changed the way I thought about the internet and where it was going. But I guess if I'm just going to pick one book that maybe your listeners haven't read yet, because you've done such a good job of covering so many, is Kevin Kelly's first book, which you can actually find online for free, in which in 19 19- probably 93 or 94, he described all of the rules of the internet. And all you had to do was follow his instructions and you'd win. And even though the book is now, whatever it is, 25 years old, seeing how the architecture of our culture has shifted, well, I hope help marketers, big or small, realize that this isn't about, should I tweet on Tuesday afternoons? That's a silly conversation to have. That the right conversation to have is, what's the landscape I'm working in and where does my leverage lie? Mm. Is that New Rules for the New Economy? Yes. Is that the book you're talking about? Interesting. And you know what? I haven't read it. So uh, I appreciate you mentioning that. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or have heard of that you're looking forward to, to digging into? I think Simon Sinek's new book is going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to some of the people I see doing interesting work online that isn't, they're not necessarily marketers, but they're people who are trying to make a difference. So Scott Harrison's new book just came out about how he built Charity Water. It's worth, it's worth noting that Charity Water has raised a quarter of a billion dollars and so much cred scott for saving the lives of so many people but if you're a marketer particularly if you're a nonprofit marketer and you haven't raised a quarter of a billion dollars how can you not be interested in understanding how scott did that oh that is such a good point and you know what i think it might have even been the same inbound conference where i saw you and scott speak and this is going to be a great marketing book because he talked about how he did what he did, and it's such a compelling story, too. Yeah, I mean, the side effect is not that he's giving people lung cancer, but he's saving everyone's life. Good for him. 
Yeah, yeah. And he had such an interesting background as a like a club promoter. And it was interesting. But also, he sort of changed the paradigm because he realized, as I recall, a lot of people are very suspicious of the money they give to an organization. Is it going to go to the organization or is it going to go to the organization's mission? So he set up two. One of them, all the money goes to the to the intended recipients. And he set up a separate one to a smaller one just for the administration of that. I thought that was rather novel. Yeah, I mean, he was he's a pioneer at that. The thing is that, in fact, that doesn't change anybody's mind after you do it. Right? I'm glad he did it, and that's a, a cool thing. But people who whine about charity overhead are the very same people who give money to universities. <laughs> Who have right, right. who have a private jet for the football team, right? So no, you're just looking for an excuse. And if Scott solves that problem, you'll come up with another excuse. Right. Well, well I guess there, for those that did have an issue with that, that was one of the many barriers yeah, to come. Exactly. Down. But to bring it back to to the the book, the thing is, the reason people give money to charity or don't give money to charity has nothing to do with charity and everything to do with status roles, tension. The story we tell ourselves about sufficiency and where we fit in the culture. Those are the reasons that people give money to charity. And what Scott has done that's brilliant is created a social media ratchet where a certain group of people, very small, have decided that they become better versions of themselves if they give money to charity. And that's brilliant because the quarter of a billion dollars he's collected, he did not take it from money that would have gone to the American Cancer Society. He took it from money that would have gone to pay for a Tesla or whatever, right? <laughs> or a birthday and, party, yeah. Or a birthday party. So the last thing I'll say is that I built a page for people who are listening at seths.blog slash TIM. And uh, there's a video there of me talking about the book and some bonuses. And I hope that this becomes a tool that people will use to share to get other people who don't get the joke to get the joke because I have no illusions that I will be able to persuade a stranger to get on board with this. The goal was to give the people who are already enrolled a tool they can use to help their peers get with the program. Great. And we'll include a link to that and, and the, the best ways to get in touch with you or to learn more about you and the new book on your episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And for the listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your podcast player of choice, like Apple Podcasts, for instance, all these links that we're going to include can be found by going to this episode on your podcast player and then clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is This is Marketing. You can't be seen until you learn to see. The author is Seth Godin. Seth, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. An absolute pleasure. Go make a ruckus, Douglas. And that closes the book on episode 200 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource, connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Blinkist. To support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan, 
Visit Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast or just click on the link at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome me to the Marketing Book Podcast. That's right. It's a presentation I gave to the American Marketing Association chapter in Raleigh, North Carolina recently to celebrate the first 200 episodes of this show. The talk is seven concepts from 200 marketing and sales books every marketer should know. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Sean Armstrong.